So, John Amos, I want to welcome you to the show, Sports and Hip Hop with DJ Mad Max. We have an iconic actor, and he is very much an icon. Thank you for everything that you've done for film and TV. We have the legendary John Amos. John, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing just fine, and I want to thank you for inviting me to your show. Oh, of course. There's a connection between not only you, but we're coming to America for St. John's, because in coming to America, St. John's is playing Marist. Exactly. So there's definitely a St. John's connection. Yes. <laughs> Do you follow St. John's basketball at all, or even when you lived in Jersey? Well, when I lived in Jersey, I did. I mean, they were a team you like to follow because they were always exciting ball clubs. A hundred percent. That's right. They always were a legendary basketball team, the Big East. I want to get into your career of starting and being born in Newark and growing up in East Orange, New Jersey. How was that experience? It was filled with all sorts of adventures and uh, possible spinoffs for another a numerous amount of series. My life in East Orange and Newark was um, it had to be it had to be recorded to be believed. From East Orange, why was it your decision to go to Colorado State University? Why was that the perfect college for you? Well, it was one. It was out of Jersey, and it was a full ride scholarship so it didn't cost me anything except my initial expenses my first year of school and they were minor compared to the value of a full-blown full-ride education so that's what brought me to Colorado and I've never had any regrets I love the state and coming from the most popular state in the union New Jersey it was uh, quite a thrill to be here in Colorado and see these mountains and these open spaces so I have no regrets about that. And I love Colorado and I hope to be here for the rest of my life. <laughs> at your time at the university, did you take any drama classes there? Because I know you got a degree in sociology. I was involved in a couple of dance, theater dance productions at Colorado State. And uh, that was a good experience for me. But no, no real... Uh, I think with the exception of perhaps one small, one small tribute with the uh, actors on campus. Aside from that, we didn't do any football productions. You also played football at the university for the Rams. You were playing running back. Allegedly, it was never confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> I had a very lackluster career, very lackluster. You tried out for the Chiefs twice. You got cut from 13 NFL teams. Did you ever try out for the New York Jets? No, I never tried out for the Jets. They uh, weren't interested in having <laughs> They me could use you play. now. I think I requested to try out, but they never obliged me. They could use you now, I'll tell you that. They could use anybody now. Yeah. <laughs> You're a big Chiefs fan because that's why you named your son KC. Exactly. I, I love the Chiefs and I love what Hank Stram did for me as an individual. Uh, he, he let me know that my future doesn't in my home during the home called the Turk that euphemism for that guy that comes and asks for your playbook and tells you you're no longer with the team. Um, he gained a new respect for me and uh, he told me, he said, I don't believe your future lies in pro football, but I do believe you're a creative talent, and I wish you all the best. 
years later, I would I would uh, hear from Mrs. Stram, who was encouraging me to continue in my career as an actor. So I had good good motivation to try. They made me believe that I could do it, and so far so good. They haven't found me out yet. <laughs> you also had your own time during boxing, and what made you want to get into boxing from football? Well, I had a lot of hostility after I lost my scholarship and I wanted to take it out on somebody and I figured the best the best way to do it and also at the same time stay in shape was to box. Uh, it provided me with an outlet for my aggression and my hostility until I ran into this kid from Utah who evidently had more, more problems than I did. <laughs> and he took it out on my head. A little Johnny Bullocks, and we, he and I argued about who won that fight for the longest time. He was declared the winner uh, at the at the end of the fight, but I always uh, always had a problem accepting the fact that I got beat by a Mormon. So that <laughs> uh, was one one Mormon butt whipping I took, and I'm, I'm I I can see Johnny. If you ever see this, Johnny Bullocks, hopefully you're still on the planet. And if you see this, I apologize for arguing with you about who won the fight. You won. I lost. End of story. <laughs> now, acting and writing and creating was something that you were always interested in. And it'll be funny because we'll get into the book that you created later on in your career. But you always had a passion for writing. Yes, I did. I felt, always felt that writing was something that I could do regardless of my economic environment. All I needed was a pencil. And a type, preferably Ticonderoga number two, and a legal tablet, and I could create anything. And that's a message that I hope to get across to the kids here in Westcliff and throughout the country, and the various uh, schools and institutions that I've spoken in. First thing the kids tell me is, "Well, I don't have a computer. You don't need a computer. What you need is a pencil and a piece of paper." And I know no matter what the economic situation is, you can find a pencil and a legal pad to write on. Somebody alone you does. You can start to create whatever it is that's in your mind. Bar none. A World Without Color released in 2017. It was an amazing children's book. I did check it out when I was doing my research on you. Just an amazing story. Very inspirational of your son handing the mail out to the people in the neighborhood. And as the book goes along, the colors start to appear. Was this the first story that you ever read throughout your whole life, or do you have other stories that you may have not published yet? We have other stories. When I say we, my son, KC, and I have other stories that we've scratched, that we've written, and some have been produced as small films, i.e. Songhai Sam, which has a historical basis of a, a, a guy who trains horses but he, he came by his education with horses through culture. Uh, he's an African and he, they had a very unique, the Songhai tribe had a very unique way of training horses. They never used a bit in their mouth or they never used anything that was restrained, restrained uh, that would restrain the horse and, and give the horse pain. They did everything by touching the horse and establishing a rapport with the horse. So, I told KC about what I found out in the history books, and we decided to do a movie, and we did called Song High Sam. And I'm pleased to say that the entire family was involved in that production. Uh, if 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 it's God's will, 
there'll be a more elaborate production or a more a more extensive production of the same subject matter because I feel it's a good good storytelling material. And of course, Haley's Comet, which I toured the world with for the better part of 20 years, I wrote that uh, in a moment of inspiration. And, so, and it's about what, what transpires in a man's life as, a, as he sees a comet for the first time as a child. And then later in his life, as he's nearing the end of his life, he sees a comet for a second time. And he relates to all a, he, he relates all the situations that have happened, highlights and low points in his life. Sons he's lost in various military conflicts. The thing that's unique about Haley's Comet is that though it's a one-man show, I must portray at least seven different characters as I become each one of those characters as they're being described by the old man. Amazing. It's just truly an amazing story that you have there and just the book that you created in 2017, A World Without Color. Thank you. From from your time in sports and football and boxing, how were you able to break into the show business and finding an agent and everything that you needed to break into the acting business? Well, again, I thank Hank Stram, the coach of the Chiefs, in giving me my release, he made me start to focus on what was I gonna do for the rest of my life. Obviously, I did not have the talent that it took to play in the National Football League, though I tried to make it with numerous teams numerous times. So I, in releasing me, he made me focus on what I could do, which was to write, allowing me to read my poem, The Turk. The entire team gave me the confidence that I could be a professional writer. And ultimately I got a chance to prove that, first by working at an ad agency as a copywriter, then at the same time moonlighting as a comedy writer for a local television show with two radio personalities, uh, Loman and Barkley. They were very popular uh, in the Southern California area. The market reached, I think, from Santa Barbara to, um, to San Diego. And we had an ensemble of actors that did comedy sketches and I was one of the writers, writer performers on that show. That stood me in good stead when I got a chance to write for a network show, which was a Leslie Uggams show. And not to brag, on the contrary, it's a statement of the inequities that existed at the time. When I got that job with the Leslie Uggams show, it made me network television's first network writer of African-American descent. There had been none prior to that. I'm not particularly proud of it. It's not like I was breaking ice. It's more like they were finally recognizing that only could we form comedy, but we could write and create comedy as well. So that was important for me. One of your first roles was Gordy Howard on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Right. Gordy Howard was a breakthrough character because at that time, television was first introducing Black characters to um, mainstream media, and they had preconceptions as to how we should talk, walk, act, react etc. So Gordy, the character that was created by Alan Burns and Jim Brooks on the, Mar on the Mary Tyler Moore show was none of those stereotypical, uh, had none of those stereotypical uh, characteristics. He was, uh, everybody, the running joke was that Cloris Leachman 
God rest her soul, an incredible Academy Award-winning actress who could do comedy just as easily and with just skill. She was under the mistaken identity that Gordy was a sportscaster. She assumed it. He was black. He was a big guy. And oh, that must be Gordy, the sportscaster. Being corrected numerous times in very tactful ways that no, he's the weatherman. Found it hard to believe initially. So it was a, a wonderful way of dealing with misconceptions and um, stereotypical thinking. I loved working on the Mary Tyler Moore show because the writing was par excellent. And it really became a challenge for me when I was offered the role of James Evans on Good Time to leave that show, to leave a hit show with Mary Tyler Moore and the rest of that superb cast, all of whom would ultimately spin off into their own series. Every single character, Ed Asner, uh, won, won an Emmy. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore, of course, uh, Cloris Leachman, Academy Award winner. Um, it just, the list just goes on and on. Literally everyone involved in that show was capable of carrying their own show. And that was proven by the fact that PBS gave each one of those characters an opportunity to star on their own show. So it was a hell of an environment to leave. I didn't know what was going to happen with Good Times, but I knew that Norman Lear was producing it. And he had an outstanding track record. But the bottom line was I made a choice. I said, uh, I made a choice that was, uh, choice was uh, facilitated in part by Norman Lear firing me from the times. So I really had no choice but to move on. But it all worked out fine. I have no regrets. James Evans, your portrayal of him is iconic and good times as the father once he was killed off the show. It wasn't the same. That's what everyone says. And I completely agree with that. Getting the role, Esther Roll was actually Didn't looking I for that. Yes, of course. And Esther Roll was actually looking for a husband because they were going to have her be a single mother on the show. And she said, no, I want to have a husband on the show. And that's when you auditioned for the role. And she saw what your performance in the audition. She said that you were her husband. That's exactly the way it happened. She was not at all receptive to the idea of being a single mother, especially in, in, in the, that Chicago environment. And when she um, had me come in to read with her, it just felt so natural and it felt so, I felt so comfortable. She did as well. And it was imperative that I make her comfortable with the character who be playing her husband. So it worked out fine. The chemistry was great. But the chemistry had been established over the fence at the unemployment office. After we did the pilot, the both of us were collecting unemployment, as actors do, between assignments, if it's legal. And in this case, it was because we're going to have to wait a couple of months, perhaps that long, to find a deliberation. Would we be a series, or would they put us on the air for 13, 13 episodes? which was the initial test period that they allotted new shows in those days. But Norman Lear had such an outstanding track record that we all felt that if we got on the air for 13 weeks with the pilot, we were going to run for a while. And we did. So it was immediately successful and it drew a large audience. And I loved working with Esther Rowe. This was a woman that had come up under the most modest circumstances. I think she didn't have her first pair of shoes until she was about 13. She was raised in a family of about 13 in Florida, 
under some very dire economic constraints. Suffice it to say, they were broke most of the time. So when we met at the uh, unemployment office, as, as fate would have it, I collected my check on the same day that she did, once every two weeks. We met at the unemployment office and we talked about the pilot. We were both waiting at that time to see what was going to happen. None of us knew what the fate of the show was going to be or the pilot. And I told her then, I said, we work together as a team. I said, I, I'm not bragging, but I'd had more television experience at that time than she had. So she had done an incredible job on Maud as a guest artist. In fact, that's what prompted Norman Lear to give her her own show, spin her off in good times as the head of the family, not just a maid for someone. So she had some experience in television. I had more and I lent it to her gladly. I told her I would be more than glad to be the front man to argue any creative points that we have. And I'll do a little bluster and a little, little growling once in a while, but don't take me seriously. You be the diplomat, you be the lady and you handle the, the, um, the flack that's gonna come when I start making a lot of noise about the script, as I will if it's not a we had a good relationship and it was wonderful, wonderfully. I missed Esther and I think the television audience misses her as well. She had a great warmth, and a great, great credibility. Can't fake what she had. She was the real deal. Now, did you see the episode exactly when they killed your character off? Because I, if, from what I've heard from multiple people in my family, they said it was one of the most depressing moments on television of all time. Did you see that? Did you see that episode or because of the circumstances you just didn't want to see what was going to happen? On the contrary, I saw it and you didn't actually see the situation in which my character was killed. Yeah, no, but they did make reference to the fact that James had died in an automobile crash or something. I don't know. I, I never did. Get a clear definition. Was it a pipeline explosion because he'd gone to Alaska to get a job on the pipeline, or was it an automobile accident en route to the job? I never knew. It makes no difference to me. I mean, I was deceased. So why would it make a difference as to how I take that? But the bottom line is uh, that's a mystery that has yet to be resolved. It, it truly is one of the worst moments of television, in, in my opinion, and a lot of other people's opinions. But what are some of your most memorable oh, experiences? Oh, it, it's true. You watch the show and then you, you watch the show on from that point when you're killed off. It's not the same. What are some of your most memorable moments of being on Good Times? One I can think of is when Michael's having his friend over and you take him into the other room and you, you give him a spanking, you give him a beating. Well, that was one. Uh, I guess the ones that really stick out in my mind are the ones that touched me as a human being. And that would be an episode where James Evans loses his temper and smashes a piece of furniture because he, he's just losing it through hypertension. And hypertension, of course, was a, a, a constant factor in the Black community. So many people particularly in the black community, suffered from hypertension. It was a wonderful opportunity for me to show what happens when a man is suffering from hypertension. Norman Lear and his skillful writers gave me a wonderful opportunity and a wonderful script to portray a character who was having such pressures. 
Yeah, it's truly one of the greatest performances of all time, as I've said before, James Evans. I wonder if Norman Lear ever thought, and probably after the fact of what happened to your character, that killing you off the show would kill the show because people tuned in and it just wasn't the same. I don't know. I think Norman had faith in the show and the writers that the show would continue despite the demise of my character. And the show did go on for a while and I, my character was ultimately replaced um, and the show went on like life. I think that was a good life lesson that despite the death of uh, a fictitious character, so the main vehicle for all of us continued. And that's a, that's a good thing. After that happened, you took a break and went on vacation in Africa. Yes, I did. I spent a great deal of time in Liberia, which was my favorite place to be because I loved one, I loved the cuisine, and I loved the fact that it was in English. Pardon me, it was an English-speaking country. So I had no problem getting around, doing business, uh, buying essentials. I loved Liberia and it was my first connection with the continent. And it was a meaningful connection because at that time, unbeknownst to myself, I was preparing for the role of Punta Kinte in Roots. And the research I did there, even unconsciously, put me in good stead in regards to the character. The accent that I used, when I feigned the accent of a, of a character who had been enslaved, it was a wonderful opportunity for me and work with Lewis Gossett and watch him and be part of the process that saw him get a Emmy nomination and win the Emmy. He helped me get my first Emmy nomination. Though I didn't win, I felt like I'd won because I participated in a iconic drama the roots will go down in television history, one of the largest demographic drawing. In other words, we drew the, one of the biggest audiences in the history of television. We did so consistently over a weekend. It was a wonderful opportunity for me, one I, I don't think I'll match in my career in television. Would you say that the role as Kunta Kinte is the most, is the role that you're most proud of throughout your whole career? I certainly put that one up there, but I, I also put the part of James Evans because, in fact, I've had so many characters that I've been proud of. I was very proud to portray Admiral Percy Fitzwallis in the West Wing. One, because it was so well written, and he was such a pivotal character in world events. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Colin Powell when he was in office. I was invited one day to the White House to meet Colin Powell, and I, I I gladly accepted. And I sat in his outer office for about 15 minutes or so, waiting for his schedule to be clear. And when I was finally called inside, he, he looked at me and he said, I'll be darned. He said, let me get my wife on the phone. And he called his wife and he said, you'll never guess who's in my office. And I thought to myself, she'll never guess who's in his office. I said, I wish my mom could see me because she'd never, she'd never guess whose office I was sitting in in Washington, D.C. And um, we got along fabulously. And as I spoke to his wife, and I saw him as a human being. So I was able to infuse the character that I was portraying as the chairman, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff on the West Wing with a certain amount of humanity. 
because uh, I related to the man. He had a sense of humor and he had a sense of humility about him despite his accomplishments, but it affected the entire world team. Um, I've been blessed. I've met some wonderful people. If you were to ask me who was the most impactful person I'd ever met, it wouldn't be an actor. It wouldn't be a, a public statesman. It was Ray Bradbury, the science fiction writer. To meet him was a dream come true because I'd been a science fiction buff all my life as a kid. And I always grabbed every science fiction book, comic book, serious novel, whatever that I could possibly come up with. And one day I was given a rare treat as an inducement to doing this radio show, the Michael Jackson show. And I'm not referring to Michael Jackson, the entertainer, but there was a Brit named Michael Jackson who had a wonderful talk radio show on that reached, I guess it reached most of the planet. And the bottom line was his inducement or his reward for you doing his show was you could have lunch with anybody in the industry or in the world that you wanted to. And that's, there was no hesitation on my part. He said, who would you like to have lunch with? And I said, Ray Bradbury, real quick. And sure enough, about a month later, according to Mr. Bradbury's schedule, I met him at a restaurant in Beverly Hills. And I had a dialogue with him. I won't share because it's a personal, personal dialogue about a mystery that I had been battling with in regards to science fiction for a long time. But he gave me the answers and he told me something. I'll just leave you with this. Ray, how did you come up with all of these stories, uh, especially the Martian Chronicles? John, and he looked me dead in the eye. I'm an alien. I am an alien. So I looked at the man, I looked at the glasses he, were wearing, he was wearing, which were about, they appeared to be about a half inch thick, concentric circles, and the forehead that went out over his face, like those old moving trucks, you know, that had the overhanging. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, I can't believe it. I thought to myself, you look like an alien, you talk like an alien. You're an alien, okay. I think they're already here, as Ray Bradbury thought and surmised. They're here. They've been here for a while. We're not the first ones in the universe, despite what they might say in the latest science fiction movie. We're not the first, and we won't be the last. Have you ever thought of writing a science fiction? I'm sorry? Have you ever thought of writing a science fiction a novel yourself or writing a screenplay? Um, I thought about it. And when I was in high school, I wrote a uh, treatment for, a, you might call it a science fiction story. And my teacher, as opposed to encouraging she didn't believe that I had written it. She couldn't, she couldn't believe that I'd written it. That was the problem because I wasn't supposed to be able to write that well according to the racial stereotypes. And she just refused to believe that I had written it. So uh, I continued to write and the hell with what she thought or, or what the critique was. I knew I had written it and felt good about it. So I continued to do science fiction and any other form of writing, primarily comedy, but also adventure stories and stories of family.
and good for you in telling that teacher, you know, in your own way to, to go to hell and you continue to do you. That's important in life. Don't ever let anyone Amen. decide your fate a hundred percent. And eventually after Roots, you've had your time on Broadway in which you love because you love performing it for a live audience. That's your true passion. That is my love. And I would much prefer to work on stage in a live performance as opposed to a film. Because you do a movie, it's disjointed. You might do the end of it first, your first day of work or your first week of work. You might not get to the end or the middle of the movie until months, weeks later. It's, it's a very, very bizarre uh, working situation. And it's seldom, if ever, you get to shoot a film in continuity, that is from the beginning, middle, and the end. Uh, whereas on stage, you get a chance to view the audience with a character that they can see developing in front of their eyes. They might have a written backstory, having an autobiography of the, of the actor or notes on the play itself, but there's nothing like being on the stage. And I say that the finest stage work I've ever experienced was working with Denzel Washington, which I portrayed his father. And I'd also done a film with Denzel. Ricochet. In which I portrayed his father. Say again? Was it Ricochet? Sorry. Ricochet. Right. In which he played a police officer. And I played his father as a preacher. And on the stage play, we both played police officers. I self-acted and him retired. And it's an incredible piece. Incredibly dramatic piece called Split Second. Um, I hope at some point to be able to Reprise split second, that is bring it back for another version. It's not necessary that I portray that role again. I'd like to find another young actor who I doubt if I'll be able to find anybody comparable to Denzel. They just don't exist to that degree, but I'll find someone that can do his role and the other roles. It's, it's an incredible piece of theater, split second. From your time in Broadway, how were you able to get that role of Cleo McDowell in Coming to America? Because you're working with one of the greatest directors in the world, which was John Landis. Yes. Um, one had nothing to do with the other. That is, the Broadway run was short-lived. We opened uh, at the Royale Theater on Broadway. And if you know anything about Broadway, you know that they do the, at that time, this is many, many years ago, were several critics in New York that had the power of life and death over theater. Um, the bottom line is we opened at the Royal Theater to a standing ovation and seven S-E-V-E-N curtain calls. I, and I said, oh my God, we're a hit. And I was performing with a veteran Broadway actress, Lillian Heyman. And she was an older woman, but she was a Broadway veteran. And while we were taking our bows, I said, my God, guess we're hit. And she said, honey, don't get too excited. You see those five or six men in the third row or whatever row they were sitting in. That was one of the outstanding critics for the New York. And they were sitting on their hands. They had not moved where everybody around them was standing and applauding. And she said, honey, 
if that man and those guys around him don't get up and applaud, we could be history. And I said, you got to be kidding. So I went home, at, you know, with my head big, thinking, damn, I opened on Broadway and I got a standing ovation, seven curtain calls. Ooh, I'm a hit. I made it. That night, the reviews came in. Their television set up in the restaurant across the street from Royale. And when the reviews came in, the first words out of the critics' mouth was, last night I was at the Royale Theater and I saw an abomination. That was it. The drinks disappeared, the food disappeared, the television set, they had them on rollers, they rolled them out, that was it, your history. Still didn't register what was happening. I go to the theater the next night as, as rehearsal called for, and I got to the theater and there's a proverbial pop sitting backstage, the checkered shirt playing checkers and filling out his racing form. And I came in and because I was playing an older character who wore a body pad and all sorts of makeup, I got there early. So she says, uh, what are you doing, kid? She called me kid. And I said, well, I'm getting ready to go put up my makeup. She said, you don't have to do it tonight. And I said, wow, we were so good last night. We got the night off. He said, you got the rest of your life off. The show's been canceled. I said, what? The show was canceled despite the reception we got from the audience. So that let me know right then. Next time I come up with a creative piece of work, that I'm involved in, that I love, and that I believe in, the hell with the critic. I'll take it out on the road myself and let the people decide. And that's what I did with Haley's comic. I wrote it, produced it, took it out on the road for 20 years to maybe five, five or six different countries. Each time it got a standing ovation. So I said, I think I'll trust my instincts as opposed to the uh, critique of Broadway. Um, that was your time on Broadway. When was your last performance on Broadway? That was my last performance. That was your last one? First and only. First and Because only. I swore I wouldn't do Broadway again. I said, you would go contrary to people's reaction to this piece. Standing ovation, seven curtain calls, tears in all the right places, laughter in all the right places. One woman laughed so hard she had to be helped to the ladies' room. And she did. And I, I saw it from my position on stage that it doubled over with laughter, and finally, she uh, couldn't take it anymore. She had to be helped to the ladies' room. So the bottom line, I say, I made them laugh till they peed. <laughs> oh, oh man! Getting into coming to America, working with John Landis, and landing the role of Cleo McDowell, which is iconic in and of itself. And you were perfect for the role. It's irreplaceable the lines in it. He's got his own money. Even when, <laughs> yeah. when, when Lisa is sitting in the living room and just what you're saying to her, he's a real fine young man. The lines you're telling her, it's just, you buy it. And as you've explained before that you feel as though your role was kind of a con man and you were the gold digger. Exactly. I mean, I was just looking out. I rationalize it by saying I was looking out for the best interests of my yeah. You know, I love my daughters. I love both my children, both my girls, and I wanted her to marry successfully and happily. So that's why I was so um, adamant about, boy's got his own money, <laughs> you know? That was very important, as is very important today. 
Uh, and even when the scene when you're in the office and you're looking through the the manual for the secret recipe for McDonald's, that's another good scene. Yeah. Well, John Landis gave me the freedom to uh, read into the lines whatever I wanted to read into them and portray the character I wanted to. And having worked for McDonald's and knowing the McDonald's system and the, the way the pecking order is established in the McDonald's unit, I was very comfortable in the role as Cleo McDowell. You actually worked at a McDonald's. I did my research. You worked at a McDonald's and that's life in a, in a nutshell of being funny and coming full circles that you eventually were able to the, be the, the manager and owner of McDowell's. Exactly. I was living in Canada, Vancouver, Canada, and they just started the franchises. Uh, enterprising businessman by the name of Ray, I can't recall Ray's last name, but one way or the other, he acquired the franchise rights for all of Western Canada. And we built and established the first McDonald's unit in Canada, in Vancouver. Actually, it was Burnaby, British Columbia. And I got a job there as a, a trainee. And that meant peeling piles of potatoes. In those days, they would, we would actually peel potatoes, soak them for a certain prescribed time in cold water to get the excess starch off, and then prepare them for distribution or fry cooks and they would be fried. It's McDonald's, one reason McDonald's is so successful worldwide is that they developed a system for fast food preparation that was unmatched in, in quality and volume and speed. So they gave the American public everything they wanted in terms of fast food, love burgers, and they had the locations everywhere, starting with the one in Burnaby, Vancouver, and I got to work at that one, and uh, I was well prepared for the role of Cleo McDowell in real life, offered me the chance to play him. It's iconic. It, your iconic role of Cleo McDowell, you were able to reprise it in the sequel, but getting back to the first one, how was the shoot? Because it's a star-studded lineup. And and which, which one? In the first one, well, of course, the second one, but the first one, it was a star-studded lineup. Oh yeah, I mean, from Eddie, after Eddie, everything was it was academic. You had all the heavyweights you could imagine, like Senior Hall. I mean, it just went, the list went on and on. There was some figure there to capture literally the interest of every demographic. Louis Anderson, who is a friend to this day and a superb comic, um, he, he blew me away with very little dialogue. He, Louis didn't need a lot, he just did it naturally and with reactions to the dialogue that was written. So it was a very successful undertaking. And, and, and Vonnie John Curtis Landis, Hall. I couldn't, I, say again? And Vonnie Curtis Hall was in Coming to America too. Oh yeah. There were, there were a great many actors who would later go on to have very successful careers. In fact, Samuel L. Jackson did a cameo in the movie as a stick-up artist and I think he was on camera on film for maybe five minutes, if that long. The scene where he comes in to stick up to McDonald's and Eddie and Arsenio take him down. Um, he went on. Obviously, you can't turn on your television without saying Samuel selling you something or calling you some kind of an MF, making you threatening to kill you if you don't do something. So he's had a successful career. 
It started with that. What was it like working with Eddie Murphy for the first time on that set? Because I did hear that he was in the makeup, of course, applied by Rick Baker, the legendary makeup artist. Academy Award winner. Yeah. Academy (laughs) Award winning Rick Baker. I mean, the makeup in itself. What was it like to work with an actor who could make a seamless transition from one character to another character? To me, Eddie is that rare actor that has the gift of totally disappearing into the character. And the best example I can think of of that is a nutty professor where he's shy, he's uh, bashful, uh, lacks confidence, is fat, out of shape, and, and physically unattractive to some of the other characters he's portrayed, which are the antithesis of what he did in that film. So he's, he's a skilled, skillful actor, and he does these transitions seamlessly. That's, that's what I mean when I say he's totally invested in whatever he's doing. So I, I've, I've worked with him now twice, and if it's, if it's in the cards, we work together again. If not, I can admire the work that we've done and be proud of it. The first time you met him, he was in the makeup, as I said before, and he was acting like he didn't know who you were. He was, I don't know you. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that happens, you know. You get you get a preconceived notion of who you are and the impact you're having on the movie society, and um, it it doesn't always your your itself. Your self-concept does not often doesn't match up to what the public thinks of you. So it's a big come down for some actors, but I never felt, well, I take it back. There was a period where I took myself a little too seriously and I paid the price. I'll never take myself that seriously again. Can't do it because it's, it's, we're just playing make-believe. And you get paid inordinate amounts of money to play make-believe. But at the end of the day, that's all we are doing is playing make-believe. If you do it believably, and if you can do it in front of the right audience with the right material, you'll be regarded with the same respect as a Lawrence Olivier and Eddie Murphy or any other icon that you can name in the film industry. But if you take yourself too seriously, you start thinking that it's all about you and not about your fellow actors, got to establish rapport with your fellow actors, particularly in the stage view, particularly because everything contingent upon the success of the play is contingent upon the relationship in live theater. One, you can, you're given hopefully adequate rehearsal time so that you can bring the best of yourself to the character. And then hopefully also You've got a good script to begin with, and you're going to run long enough to take every morsel of acting out of that, extract it, so that it's really what you want to do at the end of the day, and it's who you are, not someone else's imagination. I don't know if I said that correctly or if you got the message, but I love acting. Don't get caught doing it. That's an old adage, but it's true. It's truly remarkable how Eddie Murphy was able to portray all those characters in the barbershop. And there's no doubt about it that that inspired the nutty professor and he's playing the family roles. But going back to your role and saying that John Landis was able to let you ad lib and read some of the lines and 
come up with them on your own. How often does the people and the directors in Hollywood allow you to ad lib your lines? Because it's such as an instance is the end of coming to America with James Earl Jones. This is America, Jack. Not that often. It's, it's it totally contingent upon script and the fact that you've satisfied the author that you're doing the script his way. Once they've got confidence that you aren't going to distract, detract from the film by ad-libbing, they give you the freedom. And John Landis trusted me to uh, ad-lib or change things as I, as I wanted to make the dialogue more comfortable for my character. He gave me that freedom. So I was very, very happy with the freedom that John Landis gave me. Getting to coming to America too, how did it feel to be back on that set after 30 years? Because there was talk of the, for a long time that there was probably going to be a sequel and it just didn't end up to happen until recently. Yeah, well, time had to pass before all the ducks were in a row. I didn't know this much time. 30 years would pass between this version and the last version of coming to America. But it did. And I've matured since then. Being the star of a movie is not that important to me, though I did have a starring role in um, The Cross of Charlie, the only film that I've done since the pandemic started, and it was at the height of the pandemic. So I'm very proud of that picture because the crew pulled together. They had to pull together. We were all wearing masks. We had stringent guidelines as to our behavior on the set and our contact on the set. So it was, it was a strainful, stressful situation to shoot. But the cast and the crew were so professional that we never let the stress or the conditions of the pandemic affect the overall project. I'd like to think we did a wonderful job. I'm very proud of because of Charlie as the exec producer and one of the people that was responsible for the film being made. So, so far, so good. I hope it continues. This streak of good luck that followed me into because of Charlie. The other films I've had the pleasure of doing. And, and you mentioned before with doing the the movie with the masks on and stuff, just a rough experience for all actors in the industry this year. And, and hopefully things are getting better as the, the COVID cases are going down and that, you know, things can turn to normal as soon as possible. Are you lined up for any other films in the near future? Yes, but I'm not, I'm not, at liberty to discuss those films because they're still in a discussion state as to whether or not they're going to be made and where, whether or not they're going to be made where, where the location because so much of filmmaking is continued upon the location. So I'm waiting for these things to solidify before I announce any future plans. I will say that my son Casey is an acknowledged award-winning filmmaker and I doing what we've always done, not waiting for someone to bring us work, but creating work as we go. And we don't all, we aren't workaholics. I mean, we have fun too. Last night or the night before, over the weekend, my son and I went to see The Grateful Dead. It was my first Grateful Dead concert. We went to Red Rocks, which is a fantastic venue. And I got to say, after all these years of ignoring or decrying the success of the Grateful Dead, I had a hell of a good time. I mean, I had a hell of a good time. And I would go see them again. And I'm grateful to my son for finally convincing me to go with him for years. He knows every track they've ever cut. 
I mean, he know, and he's, he's he does. He doesn't sing that well, but every once in a while, he'll come over with the words from one. So what's that for me? So oh, that's the dead pop. And I said, yeah. And finally, I saw them live, and I understand what Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead were about. Though Jerry, of course, was not on stage; he's deceased. But it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. It opened up a whole new world of music to me. These guys played everything. I think they could have gone from Bach and Beethoven to Tito Puente without moving too many muscles. They're superb musicians. And um, I had a great time. Like I said, I'd go see him again and again and again, as my son has done and so many others. What's your favorite genre of music? Pretty eclectic. I like all music. Uh, I get up in the morning and sometimes, just because I feel like it, I'll play a soundtrack from my favorite Western or from my favorite military film because I just feel the need to hear that music. Like one of my favorites is um, uh, The Alamo, soundtrack from The Alamo by Dimitri Tiamkin, uh, an incredible composer, incredible composer. And I, get, I play that and it gets me fired up or I'll play um, something else that has a personal resonance for me. So I love all music from jazz, that was one of the advantages that growing up in New Jersey, I was in close proximity to New York City, 11 miles. So all the great musical venues for jazz artists were there. Birdland, I saw some of the world's outstanding jazz musicians live as a kid growing up at 18 or 19. I mean, I saw Art Blakey and the Jazz Master. In fact, my, drunk, my son being a percussionist, I had the, the rare gift of taking him to see Art Blakey one night in Greenwich, and Art gave him a pair of autographed drumsticks. He found out that Casey was an aspiring percussionist. He gave him a pair of drumsticks, which he kept for years and years and years. And um, these were my uh, these were my idols. These musicians, the best of whom were playing at um, uh, Birdland and a few other venues. You have a great relationship with some hip hop artists in the industry, including Easy Moby and Snoop Dogg. Yeah, Easy Moby is a good friend of mine. We've done a number of things together, and I hope that we can do some more in the future. And Snoop Dogg, of course, Snoop came to the party as far as meeting me and establishing a relationship with me a little later. I've known Easy Moby for a long time, and we get along great, like two long lost brothers. So. Look for us to be doing some more things down the road. And I hope you're doing well, Easy. If you should happen to see this, take care, brother. We got some work to do. Legendary producer produced some of the greatest tracks in hip hop history, no doubt about it. A film that just came to mind, actually, Two Evil Eyes, because I'm a big George A. Romero fan, and he paved the way a lot, especially for leading roles of black actors with Dwayne Jones and Night of Living Dead. How is it working with George A. Romero? Well, the project, because uh, I like horror films almost as much as I like science fiction. I got a chance to work with Harvey Keitel. Uh, he's a superb actor and always well prepared and always, always got something going on that he can bring to the car, something that he's created. And it was wonderful working with him in a Romero film, uh, particularly uh, Two Evil Eyes. So I enjoyed that. 
and I hope to do more of that type of stuff. <laughs> a classic horror. Horror is it's a great genre. It's interesting to know that you love horror movies. John Amos, is there anything else you would love to tell the audience here today? Anything that you have coming up that you're working on? This is your interview. Anything. The floor is yours. Well, we've got so many uh, projects that is in the hopper. Projects I've wanted to complete, projects I'd like to continue with that uh, I think it's best that I just get set tight on it until such time as I'm ready to present them to the public. Suffice it to say, you haven't heard the last of John Amos yet. There's more projects coming down the pipe. No, yeah, 100%. I'll be looking forward to them. Uh, and tell them where they could follow you on Instagram and Twitter and all that so their fans can connect with you and follow you and to stay tuned to these announcements. Okay. Visit John Amos on IG. That'll get you there and we'll take it from there. <laughs> Official John Amos website on IG. Okay. And there you have it. John I Amos. Thank I, you for this, I want to thank you for this opportunity. You're allowing me to reach another demographic. You've got a, lot, a great many listeners and viewers, uh, particularly of a young age and all ages, really. A lot of people are tuning in to watch, and I thank you for the opportunity. Oh, of course. You know, thank you for everything that you've done for film and TV. It's it's iconic, and it's such an honor and a blessing to have you here on my show. It's one for the books. Okay. <laughs> and not the comic books. No, 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 not the comic <laughs> Okay. Oh, what, maybe one for the, the Ray Bradbury books. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I hope to see Ray again sometime. I'll pass that on to him. Oh, yes, 100%. You're always welcome on the show. And when you're ready to promote, and let the, the public know what you have coming forth. You're always welcome. I have your assistance contact anytime you want to come on. If you want an hour, if you want 10 minutes, 15, you know, you're always welcome. I thank you for the opportunity and trust me, I will take advantage of it. <laughs> I'll see you again, my friend. Oh, yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I want you to enjoy the rest of your day. And thank you again for your time and everything you've done for the industry. Thank you, sir. You take care and stay well. You too. Thank you.